The Real Estate Sessions podcast is sponsored by AdWorks. AdWorks makes digital advertising for real estate brilliantly simple. Promote your brands, promote your listings, learn more at adworks.com. That's A-D-W-E-R-X.com, adworks.com. Welcome to the Real Estate Sessions and join industry leaders as they share their stories and offer tips and advice to real estate professionals. Now your host, Bill Rissa of Chicago Title, Arizona. Today on episode 24, we are welcoming Jeff Chalmers to the Real Estate Sessions podcast. Jeff is branch manager and vice president of productivity for Ross Mortgage Company in Massachusetts and has his own company, Results Consulting, or R Results Consulting. We'll ask him about that. I've known Jeff uh, for nearly four years or so, and he's yet another connection from the Inman Ambassador world for me. Uh, a lot of fun. Um, some things we can't talk about, others we will, right, Jeff? <laughs> right. All right. So a couple more things about Jeff. 25 years in the mortgage industry, and I can tell you, having run a branch for 10 years for Chicago Title, he is not your typical mortgage guy. Uh, in fact, a well-respected, highly sought-after you know, National Association of Realtor speaker, trainer, MC. Uh, uh, an ambassador seven times over. He volunteers with the uh, Region 5 and Region 6 Women's Council of Realtors. He's certified to train DocuSign, RPR, ZipLogix, Contactually, BombBomb, you name it. He's involved all over technology uh, and also heavily involved in his local community. So I think Jeff's just a great guy. I, I'm really excited to have him here. And Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Oh, Bill, thank you for that amazing introduction, and, and I'm honored to be on it, my friend, by all means. As with everyone else that I've interviewed so far, I like to find out a little bit about you and how you got started and, and, and where you grew up, and, and I'm assuming you're, uh, you were born and raised in the New England area, is that correct? That's correct. I was actually born and raised in a town of about 50,000 people, about 10 minutes out of, outside of Boston called Arlington. Arlington, all right. So I'm a Southern Californian who transplanted to Phoenix. And I can only guess what it's like growing up in New England. Can you give us a couple of highlights, maybe some of the high points? Oh, my gosh. High points. Holy smoke. Uh, put it to this way. I sold my parents' house about 10 years ago, and it was probably the easiest sell for one simple reason. I said, Arlington is 10 minutes from everywhere, 10 minutes from Boston, 10 minutes from every, every major route. The major difference between New England and other parts of the country is if you want to go to the ocean, it's a short distance, short drive. If you want to go to the mountains, it's a short drive. If you want to go somewhere like the western part of the state where it's all mountains, you know, the short drive. Wherever you want to go, it's a very short drive versus places like California. If you want to go visit friends, people are like, oh, it's, you know, it's a couple hours, which them is a long distance. And to us, it's a short drive. So, I mean, I have family that uh, my parents live two hours away from me. My other brothers live about an hour away from me. That, to me, is like a 15-minute drive, where in other states, they consider it a long drive. So, you know what? We're very, very family-oriented in New England and uh, very tight-knit. I've, I've spoken to many of people who have said that um, New Englanders and Bostonians tend to be a little on the chilly side when it comes to uh, getting to know them, and, and I don't doubt that, but I think what it is, is it, it, we are very old school when it comes to the traditions of family, and we are very much close-knit when it comes to uh, friends and family. So let's just like to say uh, we consider everyone else outsiders until we get a chance to meet them and get to really know them. And, um, and that relationship tend, tends to last a lifetime. Let, let me get this out of the way quickly. As a San Diegan, 
I've never experienced a national championship in any sport ever, unless (laughs) 10 consecutive consecutive San Diego soccer's indoor championships. We did that back in the 70s and the 80s. What's soccer? All right. Aren't you embarrassed (laughs) by your wealth of sports riches? Come on, seriously. Celtics, Patriots, Red Sox, Bruins. Does it ever get old? You got to take into consideration a lot of different things. First and foremost, one thing that people across the country forget about: we were here first, so we've been here a lot longer than other parts of the country. So you know what? Give us a break. We earned all these things that we got. And I mean, let's let's talk about it. Baseball. We've done extremely well over the last probably dozen years, but prior to that, we hadn't won a championship since the early 1900s. So yeah, it was a long time. And then as far as football, in the 70s and 80s, we were a laughingstock. And it hasn't been until the 90s where we've really, 90s and, you know, 2000s that we had a lot of our success. And as far as basketball and, and um, the Bruins are concerned, I mean, you know, they, they've done well for many years and, and we've been blessed by that. But it's taken, you know, our Boston teams have been around a lot longer than most teams in the country. So as far as I'm concerned, I think we earned it. Plus, you know, we tend to be a pretty uh, high group of people and, and we, uh, let's just say we fight for our championships. All right. I'll, I'll let you have that. Um, I I know you uh, you played football in college. I did. Yeah. So and you're actually recovering from some knee surgery right now, correct? I I am. I actually got some. Uh, it was supposed to be an ACL replacement. I'd had one done seven years ago, um, which was uh, post football injury from college. Mm-hmm. And uh, we found out after the doctor went in that the ACL was pretty tight, so it was clean. So we ended up just doing some meniscus and some other cleanup and. Uh, my recoup, instead of being a couple of months, will probably be about six weeks. So that'll work out well. Excellent. And so you, so you are paying for those times back in the day. I know there's a lot of people that run I, around oh, I, and your knees that hurt. I am. My, my knees, my back, my shoulders. I mean, you name it. I'll tell you, I wouldn't take it back for a minute. What did you study in college? And was the plan to get into lending all along? And if not, oh my how, gosh. Did, how did it happen? Not even close. Okay, let's hear about not it. Not even close, Billy. Oh, yeah, there's a story and a half behind all of this. I mean, everybody says that, you know, they have a rhyme and reason for what they do, and, and, and it's usually a good reason. Mine is extremely interesting, and I remember having a discussion at, um, it was actually the second National Association of Realtors tech event that I was asked to speak at with Bill Lublin. Bill had asked me to come down and speak, and it was in the western part of the state, um, and it was kind of funny because he had invited me after I got invited by uh, Amy Tro down in New Jersey. So not too long after that, Bill Lublin's like, Jeff, you're, you're going to come up and speak with me? And I'm like, Bill, uh, just being asked by you is a, is a huge thing. So why wouldn't I? Not to mention he's a, he's, Bill is a very good friend of mine. So in a heartbeat, I would do it. And, you know, to add to, add to the, uh, the whole crux of it, it's in, it was in the western part of the state. So, of course, I'd do it. Um, but as uh, a good friend of mine, Veronica McManus, found out when she asked the question of, you're a mortgage guy why in the world are you here at this tech edge for realtors? And I remember Bill Loveland's response looking at her was, oh boy, here it comes. So yeah, I have an absolute rhyme and reason for it. When I actually was in college, I graduated with two degrees. I graduated with a degree in uh, criminal justice and a degree in political science with a concentration in pre-law. My whole focus was going to law school. And going into law school, I was going to focus in criminal law. That was something that was of huge interest to me. During college, I worked down in um, Washington, D.C. as a uh, public defender, uh, criminal investigator, as well as a legal assistant. I did murder cases, which was quite interesting. Wow. And I also served as a full-time police officer down in the Cape. 
So my whole intention was to try and get some background. So I went into law school. I got out of law school. I'd start practicing. Well, the time I graduated back in 91 was a huge influx of um, lawyers. And Boston probably has, or Massachusetts alone, has more attorneys than any other state per capita. So let's just say I didn't get into law school, but it wasn't my defeat. It actually is something that spurred me to go and do more things. So um, first job out of college was actually working as a um, full-time job. I actually worked as a criminal investigator part-time for about six months. And then I got hired by a law firm in Boston to, um, to broaden their criminal department. So I thought that was pretty interesting. I was there for about six months and hated it. Uh, the attorneys I worked for, I was not impressed with. So I, I dropped into real estate. Uh, it just so happened that the real estate market was busy at that time. And this was back in, what, 91, give or take. And I happened to fall into, fall into it. I had a girl I was dating at the time who owned uh, a couple properties. And she said, well, why don't you try real estate? And I'm like, I know nothing about real estate. I ended up getting hired by a, um, a pretty successful law firm that at the time was small. It was probably about 12 people, give or take, but they did a very high volume of business, and they ended up hiring someone else, a law student versus me. And about three days later, I got called back by the partner of the firm, and he said, listen, we hired someone else, but I was very impressed by the answers that you gave and by your background. And I know it's mostly in criminal, but you seem to have done well everywhere that you've gone. And, and I like that spirit and, and I really like to see what you can do for us. So uh, I started there as a, as a post-closing paralegal. So I essentially uh, did all the closing packages, sent them back, sent out payoffs and did some other things. And, and I slowly worked my way up within six months to be one of the assistants and then one of the closing paralegals. And by the time I was at that stage, it was about a nine months to a year in and I think I started there at about 26. Within a year, I was making about 40. And part of the reasons was I was a big, I've always been a big process guy, you know, efficiency nut. So mm-hmm. I was always trying to find ways, you know, to um, improve what they were doing. You know, uh, what's the old saying? Um, uh, build a better mousetrap. So I found ways to streamline the way we do things. So I essentially got onto their conveyancing software. Uh, rewrote a lot of the software to do a lot of different things, um, created some processes that would streamline the way they did it. And at that time, I was closing about 100 to 115 uh, closings a month um, as a paralegal, which was insane. That's how I got into that side of it. And I I worked there for about about a year and a half, and I'm a guy who is more about learning than I am about the money aspect, and I felt like I had learned as much as I could learn and it was time for me to move on, and the partner was like, listen, we'll give you whatever you want. And I'm like, you know what, it's been amazing working for you, and I would love to do that, but I, I almost feel like everything I could learn, I've learned. And I ended up working, uh, going to another law firm in Boston, which was a bigger firm by about probably about a little bit more, a little less than twice the size of this firm. And, you know, I had a little more promise, got more responsibilities. Um, but within a year, the real estate market took a nosedive. Okay. And at that time, I was one of three paralegals. I made the most, and the partner said, listen, I think you're a great guy, and you know your stuff, but it's all about money. And I looked at him straight in the eye, and I said, you know what? I completely get it. But what's so funny about it is six months prior to that, I had incorporated a business, which was a consulting business, and it was a consulting business to help consumers because during the process doing the closing paralegal work, 
I was so frustrated with seeing so many consumers who were so frustrated with the process where they had, uh, I remember one woman who called me. She was about 70-something years old, and she was crying on the phone. It was about 8.30 at night, and no one had called her to let her know what was going on. Her realtors had never called her to find to let her know what the process was about. Everyone left her in the dark, and she had owned the home for about 30-something years, and for the first time in her life, felt alone. And I was so aggravated that I kept having that same feeling talking with people that, you know, they, that every part, every person who was involved in the transaction left these buyers and sellers to themselves. Kind of put them off in the corner and said, you know, I'll, I'll deal with you when it's time. So the consulting business was really to, to help tell consumers. They had nothing to do with helping the, um, the conveyancing side or even the professional side, the B2B side. So when I got laid off and thought to myself, okay, now's a good time to start this business, I had some friends that worked in the title insurance company. And, and they said, listen, Jeff, you know the background. We, the law firms you worked for were prominent law firms that did high business. So why don't we, you know, with your business, why don't you do like a outsourced paralegal business? And I'm like, all right, give it a shot. Well, they kept feeding me business, and I kept working with clients, and I would work for law firms that – either needed someone to jump in and help them out or, you know, where paralegals um, left at lunch and never came back or it could be a number of different scenarios. So I was, you know, hired as a hired gun, so to speak. So I worked for about a dozen different law firms all throughout New England and my business really took off. It took off to the point where I was like, okay, you know, there's no way I can handle this type of business because of the, the amount of stuff I was doing, but I had an even bigger problem on my hands. I worked with some great law firms but I had a lot of the mortgage companies that were approaching me saying, listen, we want you to close our loan. We don't want to get into the law firms. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. I work for the law firms. I, I can't work for you as a mortgage company. I have to work for the firms. So I needed to try and you know fix that new problem and what a problem it was. Right. Well, the way I fixed it was essentially to create a regional settlement company. So I had, had a number of paralegals that worked for me. And essentially I needed a way to try and streamline this process, so I created a web-based transaction management system called Click and Close, whereby a consumer, a realtor, a, uh, an attorney, anybody involved in a transaction could go online in real time and find out exactly what was going on with the no. transaction without having to make a call or send an email. What year is this? This was back in 2006. 2006. Okay. Gotcha, gotcha. So the, um, you know, the, the web had kind of already made that corner and got to a place where this was possible. Yeah, in, in a very short way. There were a lot of people in, in the business itself that didn't understand how to leverage it, right. didn't know what was available. So a lot of times they would just use the existing conveyancing software or a lot of the title insurance companies would, would create something very simple for them to utilize because not many of them would utilize 90 to 100% of the conveyancing software. They might use you know 40% if you were lucky. So the software I built was, a, again, web-based transaction management system called Click and Close. So it got to be um, a really simple idea, and, the, it, and it originally was created because of all the law firms that I worked for, instead of having calls from them saying, okay, I need a status on this file and a status on that file, I created the system so that they could go onto it and find out exactly what was going on, both the brokers, uh, the mortgage brokers, the realtors, as well as the attorneys. So all I did was flip a switch, and then, and then uh, not too long after that, I ended up having a mortgage company, uh, which was one of my clients. There were three partners to the company. One was based out of Massachusetts, and the other two partners were based out of Maryland. 
but they had a Massachusetts license. So the partner who I did a bunch of closings for came to me and said, listen, you know this business as well as I do. You know, why don't you jump on this side of the business? Now, if you've been in the business long enough, you understand that the legal side and the mortgage side was like the dark side and, you know, it, it was like uh, Star Wars, you know, the really? dark side and light side. Lenders and lawyers? It, yeah. Down. <laughs> yeah. So it, it was kind of comic. I'm like, you know what? I got to really think about that because just the concept of it really drives me crazy because I'd worked with enough mortgage people that I thought to myself, there's no way I'm going to work on that side of it. I had no respect for them. I had met plenty of them that had screwed consumers and I hated every aspect of it. And it kind of got to the point where I had a, a couple mortgage clients that were working for me who I was referring them a bunch of business who essentially started screwing some of the people I was sending the business to. So I took a simple approach to them. I say, listen, no, I'm referring you to this business because I trust you because it's an honorable business. It's a business that can be made honorable if you do the right thing. And from what I hear, you're not doing the right thing. Well, listen, Jeff, if you stop sending us business, I'll stop sending you business. And I'm like, that's absolutely fine because I send you more. I said, but he, there's another step involved in this because I'm very old school. I said, if you don't do the right thing, I'm going to jump into your business and put you out of business. And they said, yeah, like that will ever happen. Well, I did. And that's the reason I got into the mortgage side of the business. Now, you, for, for those of the listeners that are not in Massachusetts or back east, attorneys are part of every single real estate transaction in Massachusetts, right? Yep, it's an yeah. attorney state. In fact, I remember having to have some signings done for customers uh, here in Phoenix back in Massachusetts that only attorneys are notaries too, correct? That's correct. And actually yeah. that had changed at one point in time where that you had a number of paralegals that would end up doing the closings and it was, uh, you know, under quote unquote, under the guise of an attorney, which, uh. which was always comical. But then it got to the point where one of our last governors, I think it was two governors ago, created a bill which essentially said that you may be a notary, but only attorneys can do closings. Okay, gotcha. So yeah, quite different than a lot of the country, to be quite honest. So exactly. So now you've you've you're now you now originate, correct? I do. I've been originating for the last ten years since two thousand five. Okay. And you know, I hate to put you on the spot here, but I, I think it's part of your nature to to answer this question. Give me the biggest problem. Give me the biggest problem with your industry. Dishonesty. Hmm. Talk about complete that. dishonesty. Yeah. Yeah, look at it this way. You know, when you when the market went down in 2007, 2008, it was all based on greed. I mean, what would happen is the biggest question that even gets asked now is, and it always seems to be the trick question is, you know, what are today's rates? It, it is a trick question, and part of the reason is something that's called low-level price adjustments that were incorporated by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac several years ago. And the concept behind it is this: if you've got someone who's got a, a, a seven you know, 760 FICO score, and they've got 50% equity in the property, and they've got a low debt-to-income ratio, you can ask that question of them, okay, what's today's rates, and you're going to get market rate. But that rate is going to change based on a person's credit score, based on their loan-to-value. It can be changed on whether it's a single family or a condo or a multifamily or an investment or a primary. There's so many moving pieces to that that Fannie and Freddie's position was, well, there was a lot of money lost during the course of that. And it wasn't bad that they did this. But rates are all based on risk-based pricing. And based on the risk, the higher the risk, the higher the rate. So Fannie and Freddie did it right, which was the idea of, hey, listen, if we have to basically put more risk into the market, then we're going to end up putting the risk in your pocket by charging you a higher rate. The problem that happened is prior to the LLPAs is you would have a product 
that was being delivered to a prime borrower, but it was a subprime program. Mm -hmm. So I could give you, you know, I could sell you an interest rate that is a half a point higher. You don't know that it's a prime, that it's not a prime product. It's a subprime product because you don't know what's, you know, what's behind it. And a lot of the mortgage people were doing that. They were selling arms like they were crazy. They, they were selling all these crazy option arm products that sounded so good to borrowers, but the borrowers weren't educated enough to know it. And the reason they weren't educated is the typical mortgage person would never bother taking the time to educate them as to what product they needed to be in, and more importantly, why. They would just say, here's the best that's available for you right now. And at that time, borrowers were just taking it, you know, taking for what it was worth because they trusted these mortgage people that they were doing the right thing for them. And unfortunately, a lot of times they weren't. Right. Uh, You know, I I go back to my when I first became a branch manager and – I had a mortgage broker flat out tell me when I asked about someone's interest rate, it seemed kind of out of whack, and they said, well, they're, they're happy with it, so it's okay. I go, wow, so even though it's a point higher than it should have been, as long as they're happy, that's okay? And his response was, yeah, yeah. And, and you and I both know what that meant on the back end for him. A lot of money. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and this is what's so ridiculous about Billy. The way you could use to, you used to be able to make money, and this was sickening. You could make money from the borrower. And you could also make money from the lender. Yeah, so the you're making it on the back and yeah. on the front. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yield fed premium is still around. And it may be serviced a couple different ways, but the way the lending products are done now is you can make yield fed premium from the lender, but you can't make money from the borrower at the same time. Gotcha. So I can't sit there and make money from the lender and charge you a half a point. Gotcha. I have to make it one way or the other. Well, let's let's continue down the lending path. It's you know, You're one of, I think, only a couple lenders I've had on the show, so I'd love to ask these questions. You've sure. been in it. You've been in it now since uh, October first. Uh, how's Trid going for you out there in Massachusetts? It, Trid is not enjoyable by any okay. stretch of imagination, but it, but it's not something that is that has widely affected me. And I'll explain to you why. Because I spent 15 years in the closing side, thousands and thousands and ten thousands of closings. Right. I saw a lot of the of the downfalls. I saw I saw a lot of the things that were done improperly or done wrong or done inefficiently. So when I got onto the mortgage side, you better believe one of the things that I wanted to make sure got implemented was a very simple, very streamlined, very transparent process. And I leveraged a lot of the technology to do that. In fact, when I got onto the mortgage side, I leveraged a lot of the systems that I had in play from the closing side. So as an example, I created a website. It was called clickandcompare.com. It allowed a consumer to go online, to find a home, finance it, and close it all online. And I had one transaction that was a perfect example, and this was done by one of the major lenders that's still in play now, that we leveraged it. I had a client who called me and said, listen, I, I such and such referred me, and he said, you can do transactions really fast, really streamlined, and very transparent. I said, yep. And he goes, I don't believe it. I said, okay, give it a shot. I said, here's the site. I want you to go online. I want you to do the application right online. It's going to automatically email you and let you know exactly what you need to upload. We upload all the documents. That was done in the morning. Within two hours, all of his documents were signed electronically through our system. And, and this is a system I had built incorporating a lot of different uh, uh, platforms that are out there. And I just, you know, I framed it really simple. And we had it submitted that afternoon on a Monday. It was clear to close on Thursday. We closed on Friday. Wow. 
Wow. Technology is still available out there to do that. Yeah. The problem is a lot of these big platforms, and now you've got TRID in the play, which is going to you know, create a bit of a glitch for you. But one of the things I implemented, aside from the fact of making sure it was transparent, streamlined, and very simple for borrowers, is the education portion of it. So as part of it, I created a couple of things. One of the things I created was the, something called a no-fee guarantee, which is, or I should say a fee guarantee, and it essentially said this. The big thing with TRID, along with the big thing having to do with the compliance in the lending market, was this. In 2006, 2007, 2008, one of the major factors was the fact that you were doing closings, literally, at a table, waiting for a closing package. Imagine that. A borrower is having their information stuffed down their throat, saying, well, you've got to sign now. And imagine, Billy, if you're a purchase. You're buying a property, and you're at the closing table, and you get a shock as to how much money you have to bring. You walk away from that, you lose your deposit and everything to go with it. Right. I, I did it's not going to happen. I did thousands of closings. Yeah. The same thing happened. And, and uh, yeah. least favorite part was getting to the note and saying, here's your rate at that yep. time at six and a half. And they said, no, no, no. They told me it was going to be six. And uh, the lender yep. would get them on the phone. They'd go, well, it's the best we could do. If you want the house, you got to sign. Here's what happened. So in 2005, when I got into the market, those were some of the things that I said, not going to happen. So it's part of this click and compare website. I incorporated two things. One thing I incorporated was that transparency. So I gave them a fee guarantee. And the fee guarantee said this. If I tell you on your good faith estimate, you've got to bring $1,000. And if the final HUD settlement statement says you've got to bring 1500 you bring 1000 and I basically eat that 500 So essentially, every, I was never off by more than $50 in all the transactions I did. Hmm. Here is the second thing I did. I incorporated a seven-day closing review, which essentially said all the closing attorneys that I work with were required, if they wanted to do closings with me, they were required to provide me with a proposed settlement statement a minimum of seven days prior to closing, which I reviewed with my client online or in person. I never had a transaction that, that went away. I never had a transaction delayed. I never had any issue with transactions for one simple reason. I provided transparency, and I tra provided the honesty, and I provided the education. The three things that borrowers have always asked for that everyone has always dismissed. And I did it very simply. This ain't rocket science what I put together. I just implemented what people were asking for and the problems that I had, and I leveraged the technology to do it. Yeah, way ahead of trade. That's awesome. I love that story. That was back, really, that was back in 2008 that oh, I did that's that. That's great. Well, let's, I'm going to switch gears on you a little bit. Like get out of the uh, lending world for a bit. You know, you're heavily involved uh, on social. In fact, you, you really do put out some of the best Facebook stuff ever. You are a master community builder, uh, probably one of the best I know in the business. And, and I want to talk about the, how that developed. Talk about, you know, when Facebook was first rolling out or, and these things were just starting to explode. Uh, obviously, you saw opportunity right away. It just made perfect sense to me. I mean, look at this way. You and I have communications all day, and we've gotten to be great friends because of it. I, and, I, and I feel incredibly blessed, Bill, that we have because you're, you're a wonderful person who is very old school, and I love that side of it. And there's so many other great parts to you. But being able to meet People just like you, you know, like people I've gotten to be very good friends with, like Sean Coffin, you know, Dane Briggs, mm -hmm. you know, it, Tucker, all these, all these wonderful people. I mean, it's because of the Inman program. It's because of all these other, you know, NAR. It's because of Women's Council. Being able to, to, to have that type of conversation with someone 
where you were unable to do it before because they were too far away. Now, all of a sudden, you take that person, you take that profile, and you put it online where you can now correspond with them. It's the same as having a conversation in person, except you're making it digital. And what people seem to forget about this is once it becomes digital, people forget. They, I think they forget about the conversation, and, and, and it really tends to be confusing to me as to how you could. But some of the stuff that we see being posted on YouTube or Twitter or Facebook itself, I mean, you know, people will keep, like they post listings. You'll see a dozen different listings being posted on someone's profile page. And I'm like, let me ask you a question. Would you have a discussion with someone where all you're doing is talking about your listings? I sure hope not because I would imagine that person would turn around and walk away. I mean, social media is just like having a discussion in person except it's provided it's done digitally. That's it. That's the only difference. Right. Right. You mentioned you mentioned Inman and NAR and TechEdge, and th those had to be invaluable for you as you as you grew your business and as you kind of your footprint expanded. Talk a little bit about, I mean, you know, there's a story that, that I tell all the time about Inman that I'm not going to tell on the podcast. So anyone listening that wants to hit me up, hit me up with a DM or an email. Show me I'll, your phone. I'll, yeah, Show me your phone. The one thing I don't do is ever, ever leave my phone unattended at Inman anymore. But talk about talk about that community. It's been it's been wonderful for you, I'm sure, as well as me. Oh, it, I, I'll tell you right now, Billy. We are two of the most blessed people in this world to be able to meet the people that we have. I mean, imagine this. This is what's so mind-blowing to me. You know, I first went to Inman. Oh, my God. Seriously. I think it was 20 years ago. It was one of the first times. In fact, Inman has been around, what, 20 years now? So I was one of, the, one of yeah, the first couple. Late 90s. Yeah. yeah. One of the first couple of years. In fact, one of the first years I went is when realestate.com was big. Hmm. Wow. That was the first time I went. And then for whatever reason, I didn't go again until, what, three years ago. And that's when I, I got involved in, you know, Inman and, and a lot of other organizations that got more involved with social and Facebook and and it was always very comfortable for me because, you know, it's like having conversations and people will ask, you know, the simple question, well, how do you do business and how do you do a lot of business and how do you create these leads, so to speak? And I hate that word leads. I really do. But the fact of the matter is I didn't do anything different. All I did was leverage the technology to expand my conversations with people. You know, that's all I did. So, you know, like you talk about the community. Yeah, I'm very involved with my community. I've always been. My dad was always very much about giving back to the community and taking care of people. And you know what? He was all about making sure that your community and family comes first before you do anything else. And to me, my community is, is because of, because of social, it's just, is, you know, national, it's international. I've gotten to meet some amazing people, California, Arizona, Texas, all across the country. And the invitations I've gotten to, you know, for Inman to be an ambassador so many times and to be involved at NAR and Women's Council and Explode and all these amazing conferences, people are like, well, you must have done something differently. I'm like, no, that's the whole funny thing. I haven't. Nothing I've done differently throughout that whole time, whether it was becoming an ambassador at Inman and people are like, well, th that must have been amazing for you to do it. I said, you know what was so amazing about it is the people I got to meet. Imagine the idea of being in an industry. And people talking about this one topic, and, you, and, you, and you're looking at it going, yeah, that's an amazing thing. And thinking to yourself, because of the people you've gotten to know and the opportunities that you've gotten, you've gotten to see this stuff several months to a year before anyone else has even heard of it. 
I mean, to be like Inman and, and you know, be on, on um, you know, the Tech Alley when they yeah. talk about Stone all this different yeah. stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I remember, you know, being there and meet, being able to meet, um, you know, Glenn Shimpus when he was just starting Cardiby before it got bought by DocuSign. Yeah, or Dan, getting to meet, Dan Stewart and Happy yeah, Grasshopper, right? Yeah, exactly. Austin Allison, you know, with with, yeah. um, with all his. I mean, all these different amazing programs that are out there that I've gotten to meet all these owners. And it's funny when, when I'm, you know, locally or nationally doing something and they mention the person and, they, and I say, oh, are you interested in the, in the product? And, you know, I do a lot of consulting for a number of different companies nationally. And I was like, okay, so which product are you interested in? Oh, I'm interested in such and such. I'm like, okay, let's see if we can set up a webinar. And they're like, you know, I'm like, yeah, wonderful person, wonderful product. But they kind of give you this look. And I'm like, what? And they go, this product is an amazing product. I mean, it's all over the country. And you kind of look at them and they go, yeah. I mean, it literally, it's those, it's those conversations you have with some incredibly smart people that have become friends of yours because of getting to know them early and then getting to know who you are and you're not in it to basically make some name for yourself. You're in it to try and find a way to build their product and what happens out of it. You know, you get to be friends out of it. It's crazy. Right. I mean, connect cannot be a more appropriate name for what uh, Inman does. So, yeah. Amen. So Amen. Me, I'm going to, I'm going to get a little personal with you for a second. And, um, and I had mentioned this Go to you beforehand, it. you know, you, uh, you have a son recently last few years, I guess, diagnosed with autism. And, yes. you know, I, I'd like to your, you know, just to get it this first person point of view, um, what that is and, and what that uh, means for you as a family. And and if someone wanted to help, you know, what could they do? The excellent question. Bill. And I can bring it back to social, too. And that's what's so amazing about socials. People, you know, you'll hear people say, well, and even now today, well, you know, I'm not very involved in so- Facebook. I'm not very involved in social. I just don't believe in that stuff. And I'm like, well. Why don't you believe in it? What are you scared of? Because that's really what it comes down to. Well, you know, I don't want to be too personal. I'm like, well, that, you know, personal side, so to speak, of letting people know who you actually are, is what's created relationships and business and success and really a wonderful life for me. I remember when my son was diagnosed, it was like getting kicked in the stomach. I mean, I've always been in that big athlete growing up. I was very successful in it and very blessed because of that. But when my first son got diagnosed with autism, I, 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 I remember crying for several, several hours. It, I just, I couldn't believe that, you know, being an athlete as I was, I was unable to basically play with him and to do a lot of things with him. And I think what it's taught me more than anything is perspective. But let me tell you where social comes into it. When, I, when that diagnosis came into play and within the first 48 hours, I was just completely lost. I didn't know where to go, who to turn to, who to ask or anything. And then it hit me. I'm like, I've got all these wonderful friends that I've met through social. I'm going to throw it out there. I'm, and you know what? They know me personally that I'm a, a guy who wears his heart on his sleeve. I'm going to throw it out there. And I'll tell you within hours, I got lambasted with emails from people that I went to high school with, went to college with, friends I'd made and social and all across the country who are directors of programs, who had PhDs, who had masters in programs. I mean, all these amazing things. And if it weren't for them, I never, ever would have gotten the help that I needed. And that just provided an amazing thing. And from there, it went from, you know, getting myself much more educated on it to then becoming 
member of a school committee for the district and then a member of the school committee for the town and then overseeing technology committee for the town and creating all these wonderful things that were for special needs and getting very involved in the special needs program. And now I have a ton of friends that are in special needs. So when I have people, when I'm traveling, I will have people ask me when I'm in conferences. They'll say, you know, I understand you have a son with autism. And my ears go right up. And I'm like, absolutely. What questions do you want to ask? And people will always feel like, no, I don't want to impose. I'm like, are you kidding me? I love to talk about it. Anything I can do to help someone else, you just ask. In fact, I was speaking in um, Tennessee um, the middle of last year, the end of last year. And I had a very good friend of ours who actually came up to me who had a concern about his son and said, you know, I, Jeff, I, I don't want to impose, and I feel awful asking. I'm like, about what? Well, I understand your son's autistic, and I stopped him right there, and I said, you can ask me any question you want. In fact, when I'm done and you ask the questions with me, I have a friend of mine I went to high school with who literally wrote the Aretha Bill in Massachusetts, which essentially is the autism insurance bill that covers the insurance for autistic children. And she is one of the most amazing people, in, in not only in the region, but now in the country. She's nationally known. And I said, once you're done with me, I'm going to hook you up with her. And any question you want to ask, she will answer. She's amazing. And he, and it's just, it's opened his eyes. It helped him kind of gain a little bit more confidence as to, you know, what he can deal with, what he can do with his son. And it, it's, you know, it's it's very helpful because, you know, having a special needs son is 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 difficult. I mean, I have he's my oldest son is autistic, my youngest son is off the charts ADHD. So it's uh you know it, it creates a tremendous amount of respect um, for the people that are out there that take care of people that mm-hmm. who that have these challenges, and at the same time I have equal respect for the parents who take care of these kids because it requires a tremendous amount of patience and a totally different perspective on things that I'll tell you, I never would have had without my son. Wow. Well, I appreciate you sharing that with us here. Um, I've had you now almost over half an hour. So let me, let me wrap up with the question I ask uh, every guest. And if it's this, if you had one piece of advice you could give an agent today, what would it be? Don't lose yourself. Don't lose yourself. We are in a world that is constantly making you change and be different than who you want to be. And that change tends to bring you into other areas of your life that you shouldn't be. And once you, choose, you lose your identity, you no longer fight for, for what it is that you originally went into that business for. You need to keep focused on what it is you do, what it is that you love, and find that passion, because once you find that passion, the passion will find the job. So never, ever forget about who you are and what it is you love, because those are the things that are bringing you most happiness. Jeff, if people want to reach out to you, how can they get in touch? Um, I would say the easiest way is basically jump on my website. Uh, they can get me from there. They can get me on social. Click and succeed. That's click, the letter N, succeed dot com and they can get me on Twitter at click and finance click the letter N finance the Twitter and they can find me the same thing on um, on Facebook my my handle is click and close or click and finance either way 
Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time out, uh, especially, well, as you're laid up there, <laughs> as the knee's recovering, to uh, really spend some great time with us today on the podcast. I can't thank you enough. Bill, I can't thank you enough for having me on, and I look forward to seeing you, my friend. See you soon. Thanks a lot. God bless. You've been listening to The Real Estate Sessions with Bill Risser of Chicago Title, Arizona. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and tell your friends about The Real Estate Sessions as new episodes are published weekly.